some of the best leaders at laying out and driving a vision are not the ones that wake up with a brilliant idea, but they do things that women are really good at. This is The Playbook. I am so excited. I love having people on that are making significant changes in the world. Janet Fauti is the executive chair of the board of a small company called Deloitte uh, in the United States. Welcome to The Playbook, Janet. Thank you so much, David. It is wonderful to be here with you today. Well, I had to have you on because I have a five to thrive system and your new book uh, <laughs> is truly uh, aligned with my system of five to thrive. Um, you have a book called Arrive and Thrive, and it's seven impactful practices for women navigating leadership. Um, and I think it's so important for a woman uh, to understand and to teach and to communicate how to navigate leadership more than, you know, a man or, or anyone else. And, and let me tell you why. Historically, I was a sports agent and I worked with Jackie Robinson Foundation. We represented the Clemente family. My business partner was Warren Moon. And, you know, as a middle-aged white male, uh, as much as I had great intention to impact uh, others, and especially the minorities that needed to see what they could do by seeing someone do it that looked like them and thought like them and came from where they came from, uh, my intentions always fell short. And I think it's really important for someone like you who has worked their way through a, a lot of challenges and a lot of disparity in order to really inspire my three daughters uh, who can look at me no matter what advice I give. You give the exact same advice uh, as I give, but it will be more impactful. And so I'd love to start with that idea of arriving first, and then we'll get into thriving. You know, how difficult is it today for a woman, a young woman to at least arrive, let alone thrive? David, thank you so much. There was a lot packed in, lot packed into Sorry. that to yeah. that opening. So maybe a few things. First of all, um, hopefully no, um, no, we, we've just borrowed your idea of uh, of thriving. Uh, no more than that whatsoever. Certainly a word that we feel really passionate about. <laughs> Talk to Kaiser. About. Don't worry. Don't worry about Dave Meltzer. It's Kaiser that uses that thrive all the time, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, you know, I think your point in terms of where the voice comes from is really important. I've been thinking a lot over the last couple of years around all the orthodoxies that we really need to flip, frankly, as a society. And one of them is to be thoughtful around what voices are leading conversations. So we could probably do a whole nother podcast conversation on that, but I really appreciate your sensitivity and thoughtfulness to that topic. Let's talk about why we wrote this book. And then I wanna pull that into this idea of arriving and thriving. There's been a lot written about arriving for women executives and how you sort of climb the ladder and get there but not nearly as much about once you get there, um, how are you wildly successful and how do you thrive? Just a couple of, couple of stats to share with you on the, on the, to get to your question on the arriving front. Think about women starting in the business sort of ecosystem broadly, um, it's about 50-50 between men and women who start their careers in, in the broader business community. By the time you get to middle management, it's down to less than a quarter. And though we're at record highs with Fortune 500 CEOs, we actually um, lost one as a woman this week um, is just below 15%. So incredible progress, 
um, but with 50% starting their careers, but the 25% or a little bit below middle manager number says it is absolutely very challenging for women to arrive. What we're focused on is how do you thrive at every step and how do you live in a continuous cycle of arriving and thriving? This is not a once and done. I, I myself continue to challenge myself on the next place I'm arriving and the, what do I have to rethink in order to thrive in that environment? And to that point, you talk about seven impactful practices. And I love the word practice because, I mean, obviously coming from your background, you understand the significant of aggregate effect and compound interest of behavior. And I think practicing, whether it be in athletics or business or in other personal skill sets that you want to accelerate is a key component. And we need to know these pragmatic ways, practices that can give us a foundation that allows us not only just to arrive or sur survive from my generation, uh, but to actually propel and thrive. And so looking a little bit deeper into the impactful practices for leadership, what were some of the practices that you think uh, you know, are missing today or that you want to stress to especially my young three daughters sitting there who want to be you? Well, I, um, I appreciate that question and the graciousness about your daughters. One of sort of my personal themes is we should not ever want to become one another, but we should absolutely borrow good ideas. And as my thinking has evolved practices from each other, because we're all wired incredibly differently. But the whole spirit of this book is practices that you can pick and choose the ones that matter to you the most for where you are in your own personal development. So a couple things. I want to talk about to that end. One is maybe a meta theme that you hit on, maybe more articulately than most people we've talked to this about to about this book too. That was a clumsy sentence, <laughs> um, which is this idea of the discipline of practice. And I'll tell you, over the course of my career, um, especially in my chapters when I was a young mom, but al almost throughout taking the time to actually be thoughtful around your own development and create the space and create the time for practice is something that. I think doesn't come naturally to a lot of women. So even sort of at a, at a meta level, this idea of practice is important. Maybe two things I'll call out um, specifically from our practices that I'd like to highlight. Um, the, first, the first is around your best self. And that actually ties into what I was just mentioning. I will tell you that this is a practice that I have had to continue to invest in because it does not come naturally for me to take a step back and create the space for reflection and introspection. I'm a one foot in front of the other to run a million miles an hour kind of person. And a lot of women and men, by the way, are that way. And I have a couple of wonderful co-authors and one really pushed my thinking around the importance of creating the space. And we've got a bunch of good tools in our book um, in terms of knowing who you are, knowing what gives you energy and creating the time to make sure you show up as your best and strongest self for your teams, for your clients, for those around you. So that was a big sort of learning for me in the course of, of, of writing this book with my co-authors. The, the practice that I would say is the most misunder, can be the most um, difficult for women to wrap their head around is around vision. And I'll just share sort of a quick personal sort of reflection is, as I was starting my career, I did not have a grand ambition for where I was going to land or what I thought I was going to be. I like doing interesting work with interesting people. 
but I absolutely thought I would not have the ability to rise um, in to be a strong leader because I was not the person who woke up with a brand new brilliant idea first thing in the morning or the middle of the night. That was not how my brain was wired. And I really thought that to be a visionary leader, you had to be the one that had the, you know, the, the light bulb idea that flashed up. And I think a lot of women, a lot of people, but a lot of women in particular feel that way and are very intimidated by this idea of vision and sometimes even strategy. And what both through research as well as my own reflections and thinking about my own career and talking to the number of people we interviewed for this book, some of the best leaders at laying out and driving a vision are not the ones that wake up with a brilliant idea. There's certainly plenty of space for that, but they do things that women are really good at. They're really good listeners. They're really good at connecting the dots. They're good at looking for white space. They figure out how to articulate that vision to a wide set of people and understand that listeners have different ways they think about vision. And then they're really good at driving it driving it through to results. So that's the place that um, I encourage young women in particular, maybe your daughters, um, to think about not being intimidated by this idea if they don't think that they're the one with the grand vision, because you can be an incredibly visionary and inspirational leader without being the one that has the Shazam moment first thing in the morning. You know, it's so interesting that you say that because I always define a leader as an intelligent follower. Um, and that, uh, for me, I love that. I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to borrow that. I'll give you full credit, but I'm uh, going to borrow don't, that. Don't worry if you miss, it's fine. I just, you know, as a young leader, I was blessed to get involved after law school in the internet very early on and be part of a $3.4 billion M&A deal, uh, with one of your competitors, by the way, in 1995. Um, but, you know, I thought a leader was someone, you know, I played football in college. That was a motivator, you know, that I, that I had to, to, to lead in a different way, to, you know, have the Shazam moments and to push people. And, you know, it was so interesting as my career developed in multiple places, and especially with Lee Steinberg, um, who I consider one of the wisest men I've met and mentored me, was this idea of, you know, the, the listener and, you know, mm -hmm. to be more interested than interesting as a leader and to be an intelligent follower. And I do think that, women more than men have a natural inclination to be more interested than interesting <laughs> and the and this this ego that that comes to play is also something i think uh is working to the favor of dei of diversity mm -hmm. inclusion and equality that we're starting to realize these fears that separate us what are some of the needs of the ego that you see the still the you know I hate to put myself out there as that white middle-aged mutant turtle, the, the guy who's created these systems. Um, I believe that, you know, my mission is to have people like me unlearn certain things mm -hmm. uh, so that we can provide more opportunity. H how do you think the ego today, uh, these needs of the ego are changing to help bring us together to provide DEI, diversity, inclusion, and equity in the workplace? So I think couple important threads to that discussion. Um, and I'm going to ground my response to that question in and around authenticity. And I, the conversation has evolved so powerfully around authenticity over the last just handful of years, frankly. And I'm not even sure it started um, 
when the conversation started, I think we understood exactly where it was going to land. You know, when I started my career to manage the egos of those around me, um, and frankly, my own, it was you sort of keep your head down and you avoid anything that would make you appear to show up differently than your peers or the people that you were working for, or frankly, your clients. And so there's a lot of covering that happened. Um, it, it wasn't something that I certainly lost a lot of sleep over. It's just what you did. You know, I'm the daughter of a scientist and an artist. I had no idea what being in the business community was all about. I couldn't find my way around a golf club to save my life. Um, and this was sort of this environment was incredibly foreign to me. What I think we've come to appreciate, and I think the shift in ego that is happening is that those leaders that understand that creating the space for their members of their team um, and those around them to show up authentically, of course, within the boundaries of the environment that you're in, which that's, I think, an important sort of corollary. But if you as a leader can demonstrate authenticity and can create the confidence to show up with authenticity and what matters to you, it then in turn creates the space for your team members to do it. And the, the results are phenomenal in terms of commitment and engagement when you can create that kind of environment. But it's a big shift, especially for people who grew up in the era that sort of how you showed up was how everybody else showed up. And I'm, I, I have great hope and optimism, as you can probably tell from my comments, that we're in a place where that shift at, that leaders can get energy from from creating the space for allowing people to be different and for the, allowing them to be themselves for a couple of reasons. One is it creates much stronger results and much stronger outcomes. We certainly know that the creativity of solutions and impact is much stronger when you have diverse voices around the table. But the second is, is actually the right thing to do because you're creating a positive um, environment for people to be successful. So that's a shift that I think is in the process of happening. I've seen some sort of wonderful sort of stories and anecdotes and trends to that end. And I feel it's a really important shift in mindset and ego um, that's gonna be critical for creating the inclusive environment that we all aspire to that can allow everyone to be able to bring sort of their best perspectives and selves to bear. Yeah, I tell everyone, you know, if you wanna get started, just study the dictionary, study <laughs> All the words that start with in, especially inspired uh, in spirit, and we'll start realizing how much powerful we are together in spirit, uh, regardless of uh, this external embodiment that uh, causes judgments, conditions, and separations. Uh, I'm going to touch on the last topic, uh, which I find you know interesting and would love your experience put to it. The pandemic, I felt that it would really help uh, especially uh, with the male versus female, mother versus father type of responsibilities, duties, balances, as in the activity we get paid for because of either the stay-at-home remote work or just the hybrid work uh, that would give a new awareness to both parties of you know different challenges and different opportunities that would present themselves. I would love for you to share your perspective of how uh, the pandemic era has shifted uh, this idea and how your impactful practices uh, are also affected by the pandemic and this newfound remote or hybrid working uh, atmosphere that we are all put into. 
So I love that topic. So thank you for giving me the space to talk about it. Um, I'll start by saying that I think the movie is still being written on the future of work and the future of both the workforce and the workplace. And so I'm, I'm going to just share a couple of stats um, and, and some of my own observations. So yeah, I think as you well know, writ large to date, the pandemic has not been good for women. Um, and I'm with you, I, at, the, at the very beginning, I, I didn't fully appreciate exactly how at least this chapter of this movie would go. Um, the care phenomena was incredibly highlighted during the pandemic. We, we know, because we've studied it, women provide, professional women take 70% of household tasks, including childcare. Mothers of young children reduce their working hours by at least four times that of fathers to care for their family during the pandemic. So think about that giant step backwards um, in terms of women having to either drop out or reduce their roles in the workforce in a really meaningful way because of the care phenomena. So the flip side and the positive side is to your point, what we hoped would happen is it would create greater flexibility. I think about when I was a young mom, I tried about every variation of how one could work and it was clumsy. And I was, you know, a unicorn, so to speak, because there were very few um, working moms at, at, in sort of in my world at that point in my career. And so th there is some innate flexibility that I do have optimism in the long run will be good. But maybe, and to tie it back to something we talked about earlier, I do think turning our living rooms into conference rooms actually created space for authenticity in a very different way. And we know each other very differently um, than we did um, prior to the pandemic because we're sort of living and breathing in each other's homes. And so I do think there's a great sort of positive halo effect to creating that sort of that, that intimacy um, between colleagues in terms of getting to know each other um, in our home base. And then we all close on the things that I worry about and that I think we have to be sensitive to as we enter this true area of hybrid work is it is so easy to fall, and we know this around you know, mentorship and sponsorship, it is so easy to fall into the trap of proximity and likeness. And you and I will invest in each other because we went to the same school, we have the same background, our kids, you know, our, our, our kids are, are good friends and play together. And one of my concerns uh, about women, especially if women choose a more hybrid construct, is that they'll be left out of the incredibly important informal communications and relationships and conversations that we know steer business forward. So I think we have to be incredibly deliberate about how do we create in-person experiences that help create those relationships and bonds for everyone, and how to be very thoughtful around how to create an inclusive environment in the hybrid world. And that work, there's been some really good thinking and research, but there's a lot of work to do to make sure that the step back we took in the heart of the pandemic, actually that we can use this broader ways with which we work to actually accelerate, catch back up, and, and frankly, um, succeed more broadly, rooted in this idea of both an inclusive workforce, inclusive teams, um, and, and, and authenticity. Well, I love your premises, your thoughts. I love the book. I always tell people uh, the fastest way to get to where you want to be is find someone 
who sits in a situation you'd like to be in and ask them for directions. And the seven impactful practices for women navigating leadership are absolutely a divine map to get to where you want to be. And I appreciate uh, you taking the time to come on here and share the insights behind not only the book, but also your success for not only young women, but young men and men in general who have great intentions like me uh, to accelerate the change that we've seen in our lifetime. And I think it's more important sometimes for men to read these books as well that want to provide opportunity and also that want to be empathetic uh, to the different challenges or the impact that can be made or, or should be made. But if we don't unlearn some things and relearn or create new learning through books like yours, uh, we are just standing in our own way. So I appreciate, uh, Janet, everything that you've done and congratulate you on your success. Janet Fauti, Changing the World. She is the executive chair of the board of Deloitte in the United States, an extraordinary entrepreneur, humanitarian, and I guarantee this person will have a lot more to say about equality, inclusion, and equity in the workplace. Thank you for joining me.